0: everybody, this is David. My next guest is Emery Neal Brown, and he's a professor at Harvard and MIT. Uh, He's also the, I think, head anesthesiologist at Mass General Hospital. Uh, He also does a lot of work at MIT and Harvard, and he just received an award, which was for the neuroscience of anesthesiology. Uh, He just got it a couple weeks ago, which is how I found his name. So we're going to have a cool conversation basically about how he turns off consciousness. Um, They don't fully understand all the technology or, you know, all the working components, but they're trying to get more and more accurate him and his uh, research group on how to more accurately turn off consciousness and then turn it back on. So really cool conversation. Hope you like it. Let me know what you think. Would you like to live forever? We are finally starting to understand the human brain. Born from artificial intelligence singularity, I give you a last machine. The David Bramante Show. Hey, Emery. David. Hey, thanks for joining me. Oh no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. So I saw um, it was a couple weeks ago, late October. Uh, so not not too long ago, actually, that you received a an award called the Schwartz Prize. Schwartz yes, Prize, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: For thirty thousand. Um, and then from the Society of Neuroscience. Yes. Yeah, and then, cool. And then, uh, I you know I would love to know what that is, and then how that works. Like how you how you were given that. Like what work was it that contributed to you getting that award? And then what you would normally do with the prize money, do you do some kind of research project with it?
1: Um, yeah, so the Schwartz Prize is given annually by the Society for Neuroscience for someone who's made contributions in theoretical neuroscience or computational neuroscience. And it can be over a career, or it could be something very, you know, very, very specific. And what, you know, and I feel obviously very fortunate, and very humbled to, to win it, very grateful. The The award in this, in my case, acknowledges the work that we've been doing both on trying to understand the neuroscience of anesthesia both from a theoretical and experimental standpoint as well as the research that i've done on developing methods to analyze neuroscience data and uh, making you know making insight making it easy to gain insights from by having better analysis methods for statistical and signal processing methods for analyzing neuroscience data and you know what what you what you do with it what i've typically done with awards like that is just fold them into my research program, you know, just okay. view it like a small grant and then fold it into my, my research program. So I'm, I'm obviously, <clears throat> every amount helps. I'm extremely grateful for receiving it, both for the acknowledgement as well as for the financial
0: remuneration. Nice, okay, and then I, and so for the research program that you have, do you have a team of researchers working on a specific project, specific problem?
1: Yeah, so we have a, so I have people that I supervise, so graduate students, postdocs, undergraduates even, that are working on uh, the, the problem of, of of anesthesia, understanding it from a number of different aspects. And these are done with my the people who are under my direct supervision as well as collaborators. So I have collaborators who are anesthesiologists, engineers, neuroscientists, neurologists, mathematicians. And we have a consortium of us that are working on this problem because the problem is complex, it's interdisciplinary. And you need a broad range of expertise to do that. So just to give you some idea of how it's set up, we have um, our human studies that we do either in volunteers or in patients where we're recording data while patients are receiving anesthesia to try to understand how the the effects that the drugs have on the brain. And then there are other studies that we're doing in non-human primates research, for example, that we're doing with Earl Miller over at MIT and, and his group. And it's led by Yumi Ishizawa, who's an anesthesiologist at Mass General Hospital is also an exper- an experimentalist doing you know non human primate studies. Then our non human then we're doing uh, a series of rodent studies as well with Krista, Krista Van Dort and um, Ken Salt at Mass General Hospital, and then with um, with Nancy Copel at Boston University, she's an expert in dynamical systems and modeling oscillatory. Oscillatory uh, processes, and so we're working with her to try to understand the structure of the oscillations. And the human studies are have been are headed up primarily by Patrick Purdon who's one of my longstanding colleague. He's a bioengineer, neuroscientist at Mass General Hospital. So it's an interdisciplinary team, you know. Okay, all
0: right, but it's not a team that reports to you. You guys meet regularly, or it's everybody's kind we, of. Working we
1: have we we have regular meetings. We have oh, a okay. monthly and we have a monthly meeting. And in one of the monthly meetings, one of the team one of the groups presents. So, like at our next meeting, the mathematical modeling team is gonna present. And it's an integrated discussion of what insights they've gained and what what things they'd like to know about the experiments and vice
0: versa. So it's an exchange that involves every in you know, all all the four major groups. Got it. Okay. And it is the the I was watching one of your interviews, and is it the main thing that you're trying to accomplish is to figure out what the black box is of what is what is actually happening in the mind when or con- what happens to consciousness. Under anesthesia.
1: Yeah, it is. And in, in other words, so so the very so let's just be very, very practical. People need anesthesia for surgery. Right. And for years it's been said that it's not clear how anesthesia works. It seems like a black box, as you suggested. And the one thing that we've tried to do is say, well, um, We know it has to be, well, so let's just try to localize this. Okay. It has to be acting in the brain. All right. It has to be acting in the brain and central nervous system. Okay. And so, so first, what do we know? So we, so just that obvious statement is, is, uh, is true and it's important. Now, why do I say that? Because the conventions that are used to tell you how to dose the drugs refer to levels of drug in the blood or levels of drug in the lungs. Okay. All right, so, so the question is how do those two things relate? In other words, conceptually, you know the things have to be acting in the brain, but then, you know, there has to be a link to what's happening, you know, these things that we say about blood levels or drug levels, and very often they're conventions. Okay, they're not. So, so that's the first thing. Then the second thing
0: is so, that- so, so I could clarify, so the feedback that you get as when you're doing your work, that you're, check, you're using the lungs or the blood,
1: Right, Probably forget literally. about what, I, put aside what I'm doing. So if you're, to be very concrete, if you're an anesthesiologist and you're administering the drug sevoflurane, right? Okay. Then you'll know that if you're giving a certain, if you're giving it a certain flow rate, then you're told that at, at that particular flow rate, how likely it is the person to be unresponsive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so so you can see what the fro- flow rate is going into the lungs you know what the person is breathing in and so then you from that infer that the person is unconscious or not unconscious based okay, on yeah. what that what that number is okay and so our feeling was we can make that more precise because if we know something about we know where the drugs work in the brain because we know what receptors they bind to and we know the anatomy that connects the various brain regions so and so those are things i mean those are old those are those are things which we've known for years. So then the now if you do, now add one more element to it okay. put the eeg on a patient. And now as you as you give the drugs you now you see these very systematic highly structured changes in the eeg. Does that tell you something more about how the drugs are working and how you could dose them than just m- using a convention based on you know what the concentration is you're administering is going into the lungs? And the answer is certainly yes. And the reason you can do that is that the drugs systematically create oscillations, which are highly structured and inflexible. And so roughly speaking, they, you move from these high-frequency low-amplitude oscillations to highly-structured, large-amplitude, low-frequency oscillations. Okay. And in so doing, these oscillations persist as long as you keep the drug going, and they basically disrupt how the parts of the brain can communicate. And you can actually see those patterns of oscillations on the EEG in real time in the operating room. So
0: you can so see now the pattern to, of the interruption.
1: You, you, you can see the pattern which is associated with the interruption. Oh, right. The yeah. interruption we come to understand by doing animal experiments. Okay. But then you see the same pattern when you're, uh, when you're in the operating room. So then you can make the inference based on the animal studies. that, the, Or even in terms of some human studies where patients have had electrodes that this particular pattern is associated with parts of the brain being interrupted Mm. okay got it right so so that's how we've tried to make it you know you know much tighter if you would or have a much clearer statement of what's going on so then the statement would be as I said just a second ago the oscillations act to disrupt the ability of the various parts of the brain to communicate because as the oscillations occur they modify when the neurons you know, the, you know, the fundamental communication elements of the brain and central nervous system, they modify when they can spike or when they can make transmit little bits of information. And so if they're totally shut down for a while, then they allow them to come back up. They're shut down for a while. That sort of dynamic is going to prevent
0: you from being conscious. Got it. Yeah, it's interesting. And I was reading that you're also working on something called burst suppression. Is that to pull them out of out of that state kind of like on a dime? So you have accuracy, you're trying to get more accurate putting them in or it's pretty accurate when you put them into that state, but you're refining how quickly you can take them out of the state with worse impression? Wait, so there are two steps to it. So first of all, let's just monitor it and know what state they're in.
1: Right. Okay. And then as you monitor it and know what state they're in, then you can adjust the drug doses in a more principled way. Right. All right. Now, then if you ask what are the various states one of the states happens to be birth suppression and it's just the opposite birth suppression is a very deep state and and in general in general it's deeper than you need to be just for sort of regular surgery regular anesthesia
0: for just regular surgery so you're not trying to take it to that state that state because that's associated with comas and stuff
1: well in other words even even the states above that in anesthesia are their coma-like states, but let's just say you don't need to be that profoundly unconscious in most situations to have surgery. Right. Okay. That let means... me let me say it that way. Yeah. Okay. Right. So so then what? So when you're monitoring, you see that, so you know you can turn your drug back, you can decrease it. And the people in whom you can have this, who would probably benefit most from this, because they go into birth suppression so easily, are older patients. And older can just be patients over 50, let's say, for example. Okay. So, so birth suppression turns out to be a state of profound brain inactivation, which is seen also during states of coma when patients are hypo, you know, profoundly hypothermic, or in like like some of these this this disease called early infantile encephalopathy, or, or Otara syndrome. And what we realize now is that we, we you don't need to be that deep to be un, sufficiently unconscious
0: to have surgery. So. Okay, you, this- you, can you, so you try the drug back? Can you and with these drugs, you can obviously push them lower than that. Exactly, you can. Mm-hmm. Can you and with these drugs, can you within can you overdose the patient and kill them with these drugs, or kill the mind with these drugs?
1: Well, so that's interesting. So let's just say, kill the mind. That's that's a very strong statement. So yeah, yeah, let's, sure. You, let's say you can impair someone's cognitive state. So so just to to state what we typically see older patients that have had anesthesia for let's say four to six hours waking up and having some form of brain dysfunction either delirium or confusion not being able to find words you know this type of thing that does happen and that's something we're trying we're trying to reduce the prevalence of that or
0: and reduce the 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 likelihood of it occurring and that and that's a temporary thing though
1: yes but it can last for several weeks or so and so that can be quite annoying
0: okay and then the other thing was, I saw there's some studies where you guys are, or your group is using Ritalin to pull them out of that state, like with a very, just make it as, very, as accurate as you can.
1: Right, exactly. And I think that, so this is conceptually something that, um, you know, is not part of standard practice in anesthesiology at the moment. We usually just let the drugs wear off and, you know, just, well, he, he, it'll wear off and he'll wake up, you know, sort of thing. But, you know, we started thinking a few years ago, why not just turn the brain back on? Why not give them something that can activate oh, the cool. surface? Yeah. yeah. So so we're studying that in detail, and I think it, it holds a lot of promise because, uh, and I think where the, the patients that may benefit the most are some of these older patients
0: who are involved, you know, for this reason. That have those um, those conditions that can last a little while after. Right,
1: exactly. And And, and what happens is, so as we get older, I mean, think of the nervous system you know you're communicating through think think of the the connections among the neurons as like wires like the electrical wiring in a house right and if you're someone who's you know 70 years of age or 80 years of age basically the wiring in the house has been around for 70 or 80 years and and it's going to be frayed so the fidelity with which it can transmit electrical impulses is probably Going to be declining with time Mm. so as a consequence you know when you when you give these very potent drugs which make the the circuits in the brain oscillate with these futile cycles you can just then imagine that the people who are going to pay the highest price for that are going to be the older patients Mm -hmm. So, so they're the ones who would probably most benefit from something that helped to reverse that state as cleanly as
0: possible interesting Okay, cool. Well, because I've been talking to some, it's been a wide range of guests recently, but it's all been around consciousness. So mm-hmm. I have to ask because you, I think you're the most hands on in this field that I've talked to. Mm-hmm. You, when you are administering these drugs,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you are 100% trying to, the goal is to stop them from being conscious. So you're disrupting whatever that is in the mind, you know, where it is, you, you see what the pattern, you see what the effect in the patterns are when you do it. Mm -hmm. But do you you have an opinion of where that consciousness lies within the mind? Okay, so so that's a very fantastic question. So let me tell you what my objective is and where it intersects with the
1: position of consciousness. Okay, so my objective is to generate general anesthesia. Yeah, so general anesthesia has several, has four components, four main components. So I need to first make sure you're not gonna perceive any pain. That's probably most important. Because you can, you, can, you know, there's certain operations we can do with you wide awake. Like if you have like a spinal or you have an epidural, you could have legs, you could have like surgery on your leg surgery on your knee, and be wide awake. So the most important thing is controlling pain. All right, or, right. or no susception. Then unconsciousness, obviously, if you're having a surgery where they're operating on your abdomen or your chest or like that, you can't be awake and breathe properly. If someone's, you know, you know, you're undergoing cardiac surgery or abdominal surgery. So then unconsciousness, amnesia, meaning you won't form any memories during that case, during that during that time, but if you're truly unconscious, that won't happen. Yeah. And then the other part is not moving around, so that it's easy for the surgeons to operate. All right? mm-hmm. And then doing that with you being physiologically stable, heart rate, blood pressure, body temperature, you know, oxygen saturation, all the physiologic variables are well maintained. So that's my objective. That's what I'm after. So Mm -hmm. you can see unconsciousness is part of that, but it's one of, and and also the the key thing, the other part of it is having that be reversible. I put you in that state and I wake you up. Mm -hmm. So unconsciousness is one line item in that, you know, sort of in that list. And so I want to know that you're unconscious. And do I actually know where it is? No, I don't. So let me tell you how I think about it. I mean, I'm the first to say that. So I know that it's a. we realize that to generate consciousness requires integration of many parts of the brain. So the arousal systems in the brainstem, the lower part of the brain, the processing mechanisms in the cortex, and the major relay mechanisms or circuits in the thalamus and then what i've come to appreciate is so what i need to know and again you know think of me now as a technician as as opposed to someone who really understands consciousness per se i'm like a i'm like a consciousness technician i can tell you when it's turned off Mm -hmm. right I, i can tell you yes i see these oscillations i know what parts of the brain they're being generated by i see the effect that's occurring so I feel very comfortable that they're properly turned off.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the more complex question that you're asking is, what, how do these things integrate to generate consciousness? That's not, in other words, if we do our work properly and inform our colleagues on how they, these are turned off, they can use our insights to help formulate a, a clear idea of what consci- how consciousness is being produced. And there are people in your group that are working on that? That question, no, we're, not, we're we're not working on that. I mean, so I think of the you know the you know the the real luminaries in this field, people like you know Christoph Koch, or you know somebody like George Mashur, who's at University of Michigan, Koch, who's up in the Allen Institute. Um, I mean, or you know, I mean, they're actually working on, you know, consciousness. How how what what makes us conscious? Or like Giulio Tononi, for example.
0: Okay,
1: you know they're. they're
0: your team is on a technical level, hey, we're going to turn it off. We're going to turn it on. We want to be able to turn it off better, or it seems like that's pretty much perfected. But you want to be able to control it turning back on and just kind of rebooting quickly without any issues that are right. especially and, for and, older patients. And, and I
1: wouldn't say that we've turned it off, we turn it off well at all. In other words, because oh. we, we should ask the question, can we turn it off better? Because if we turn it off better, that alone may be enough to get rid of some of these side
0: effects. Oh, uh-huh. and what, right, when so, you turn it off better, what is it that, what's what is what would you like to improve in that process when it's happening?
1: Well, so for example, you give the drug, now it goes everywhere. Oh, okay. Suppose you can make it so it only needed to go to a certain subset of sites, you know, whatever that means, right? Then, because side effects, a side effect is indeed that. It's an effect because the drug is acting somewhere you don't want it to act. Oh,
2: yeah. Right? That's, yeah.
1: And so, if you can cut down, you know, you once you've injected into the blood, that's it. It's going to go where where it's going to go.
0: And that's and then, currently how it works.
1: Yeah. You know, or 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 we have gases, which are still ethers that you breathe in, and the same thing occurs. They go everywhere. Okay. And so, what you want to do is have a way of controlling where they go, so that you can, um, so that you can, so if you can control where they go, then when you're done, you can stop that effect and then like you're suggesting maybe now give something that actually mm-hmm. helps wake you
0: up
2: mm-hmm.
0: okay cool and then i had a question just going back so you guys are doing human studies the human studies are on going waking the consciousness back up is that what the study is on
1: yeah so that's one which we're you know we're, we're doing a new round of that we've 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 completed a segment of them so we're you know we're looking to extend those further but we're but the human studies are also still on anesthesia just you know d- recording more data and be- giving getting more precise understanding of what's oh, happening okay. to patients under anesthesia
2: oh okay um,
1: because there's still a lot to be learned there so for example if there are ma- four major classes of drugs let's say the you know the drugs which you know like the drugs which make you unconscious which we call hypnotics the opioids for treating pain and maybe sedatives like dexmedetomidine um or a drug like ketamine so we've studied propofol the most but we haven't done as much detail study in some of the other drugs so we're trying to complete the matrix of other drugs that we're studying Mm -hmm. so we can have a better characterization of how they are turning the brain off and what happens when you turn when you when you uh, stop them and the brain comes back on
0: okay and then what about the non-human experiments
1: so the non-human primate experiments and the rodent experiments are you know particularly the non-human primate experiments are really important because you have a brain which, very, which is much closer to the human brain. The, the animals can execute behavioral tasks very much like the humans can. And we have the advantage of now we can put electrodes across the entire brain directly into the brain tissue. Oh, wow. So, so we can see directly, you know, what it looks like when the brain is turned off, how it comes back. And so, so that that's why the non-human primate experiments are giving us a lot of insight, a lot of work. Where,
0: where are those experiments done?
1: So those are being done at MIT with, with my colleague Earl
0: Miller. Oh, and how many primates are getting are in this experiment?
1: Well, it it varies depending upon you know you know what what we're what we're doing you know it, oh. it uh, you know, so yeah you know sounds but, so crazy but, but but standard standard practice for like non-human primate experiments is it for a particular protocol, it's probably two animals.
0: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Interesting. All right. Yeah. That was kind of the main thing. Um, so uh, a follow-up would be, so why is it unco- being unconscious and then the having the amnesia, those are two separate line items. Why are those separate? Because that I don't well, understand.
1: Well, it, it's just important to say. In other words, because. You know, um, see, those are just behavioral descriptions.
0: Okay,
1: got it. So a, like you got to gotta
0: check these boxes. That yeah, exactly. Just remember to check that working. box. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, okay. and most of
1: the time, one will be a subcase of the other,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? But but by the same token, you know, there are times when we sedate patients; they don't need to be profoundly unconscious. They just need sedation, like when they're having a colonoscopy, right?
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: you'll get amnesia for that, even though they were apparently awake you know, you know, during, during the procedure.
2: right?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but when I'm thinking about full general anesthesia, that's just something which we just want to be sure we state.
0: Right. And then with the, the check mark of pain, obviously that's the biggest, scariest thing for anybody. Totally. And, and there was a time where major surgeries were happening and they had to just bear through it.
1: Right. Exactly. Before the, before the discovery of ether as an anesthetic, um, surgery was basically trauma and butchery, and surgeons were actually measured by how fast they could work. you know, literally yeah. they could do a procedure which most of which were amputations, you know yeah. in a minute or two minutes or something like that. I mean, it's horrific to think about that now,
0: yeah, it's crazy, it's very crazy um it, and then with that, is there a part there's a level of pain where the the mind will make itself unconscious or through some of these operations. People were just, because it seems like from what I've read, people would die from the level of pain, or that never happened. Oh yeah, just well,
1: no, I think that's very likely because pain is an amazing stress, uh-huh. and you can just imagine someone having a heart attack because of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, just, just, just simply like that unfathomable way. to to have it, to it, watch your body. Exactly, yeah. excruciating pain, uh-huh. and so, so the discovery of the discovery of ether and its use as an anesthetic was a major advance for medicine. I mean, it, it, it literally overnight transformed surgery from being, like I said before, trauma and butchery to a humane therapy. Right. And the advances, surgical advances occur because anesthesiology has become better at controlling the physiology of the body so that more different and sort of more Varied types of surgery can be undertaken.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, cool. Thanks for answering all that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I did have one final question. Sure. It's a curveball. Okay. okay. You ready? All right. Which you prefer, uh Star Wars or Star Trek, and why?
1: <laughs> I grew up in the Star Trek era. So the original Star Trek. So the 60s right i saw the first episode when it came on in 1966 i saw the last one it went off in 1969. right i've watched all those those are cool and you know mr spock was my hero Mm -hmm. and actually you know one of the actually one of the best episodes my favorite episode is the one called the ultimate computer oh which one's that it's with it's with uh dr william daystrom he invented the duotronic system that controls the starships and then oh, cool. he was, they, they staged war games where his new control system, which was gonna reduce the number of humans needed to control the ship, would uh, be would be cut and, would be reduced dramatically to like the crew. I think the Starship had about between 400 to 500 crew members that would reduce it to 60. And this machine could make all these decisions independently. You didn't need crew members to do that anymore. Wow. And, you know, the Star Trek is about, it's about, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's about science fiction, but it's also about human human interactions a, a lot when you look at it, because the whole contrast between Spock and Kirk or Spock and McCoy is different between emotions and lack of emotions, right? Or just right. Mm-hmm. Well, so the the key thing that that this particular system had was taken over the Enterprise, and the Enterprise viewed its in a war game, viewed its other its its ships, federal you know, uh, uh, Federation starships as real enemies, and it started shooting them for real and then they realized that you know you know obviously they had to do something and what happened was is that daystrom talks to the computer and he tells them what that what it was doing was wrong Mm -hmm. so he had programmed this computer with his own ingrams the own sense of right and wrong and it hurt him and it stopped the attack oh cool so that that you should you should watch i'm gonna check that out i've seen every
0: episode i don't know how i don't remember that one that show was pretty yeah, intense yeah. for the time. I I'm. Oh yeah. So it. yeah,
1: yeah. William Daystrom is is played by the uh, the um, the actor uh, William. What uh, Daystrom is played by William Marshall, the Shakespearean actor. Oh, cool. Very imposing, you know, sort of voice and what have you. So yeah, it, it, it's cool. That's, that, that's cool. the coolest. Thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was just talking. The last guest I had on was we were talking about artificial intelligence. And some war games, mm-hmm. real-life war games between China and America. It's very mm-hmm. scary with, like, implementing oh, AI. It? And they, he was talking about how the United States, at least, and our, our allies were keeping a human in the system, in the AI mm-hmm. system or these right. military system, just for that very reason. So that's cool.
1: So this is, you'll, you'll, yeah. you'll, you'll like this episode, The Ultimate Computer, it's
0: called. I'm going to check that out today. Yeah, cool. All right, cool. Thank
1: you so much, Emery. Oh, David, thank you so much. My pleasure.
0: I really appreciate all
1: your time. All right. Thank you. Stay safe, man. All right. Bye. See you then. Bye now.